welcome to Ethical Quandaries. I'm Jessica Veldstra. And I'm Denise Thompson. And today we have a super special guest. We're so excited to have her. Paula is here. Paula is a long-term friend of mine. We used to work together for many years at OCS. She was a visit supervisor. And she comes in with a different perspective. As you know, Denise and I grew up evangelical, strict evangelical, and Paula grew up completely differently. How did you grow up, Paula? I grew up Jewish. Okay. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. And both uh, my father, my uncles, my grandparents, my great-grandfathers, and my great-great-grandfathers were all Jewish clergymen. Oh, wow. So I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to learn all sorts of things. You things. never asked me. <laughs> so were they rabbis? So or? they were cantors. Okay. So and where's the, a cantor? The cantor sings the prayers. Okay. So in the Jewish ceremonies or in the Jewish services, most of the prayers are sung. Okay. And uh, not all synagogues have cantors. Some people have lay people mm-hmm. that lead the service, but most of the prayers are sung. Okay. And, and so my father, he had a beautiful tenor voice, oh. and he was also an opera singer, and both my mother was an opera singer, so they met both seeing the same music teacher for hmm. opera. Oh, okay. nice. Her name was Madame Zador. <laughs> that was the opera singer, or opera teacher. Opera teacher, she was horrible. <laughs> Every time she came... I imagine her wearing a turban. No. <laughs> she was Eastern European with a very thick accent, and my parents adored her, and I hated her even at four or five oh, years no. old. She was always correcting me. Oh, no. You know? <laughs> anyway, they met in her studio oh, okay. studying opera. So my father sang all the uh-huh. prayers. He performed weddings and funerals, and sometimes he taught boys how to do their bar mitzvah, okay. which is a rite of passage uh-huh. at 13, which is also generally sung in Hebrew, uh-huh. of course. And his father was a cantor. His brother was a cantor. His grandfather, my great-grandfather, came from Hungary to be a cantor in New York. Okay. They recruited oh, nice. him prior to World War One, I, I believe. Oh, wow. Okay. And he came from a place in Hungary where his father, so it would have been my great-great-grandfather, was also a cantor. Wow. <laughs> and on my mother's side, my grandmother, her mother told me that her father was also a cantor. So I have it from both sides. It's <laughs> nice. It's and I'm, I had my DNA done. I'm 98.8% Eastern European Ashkenazi Jew. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so both sides way far back. Way far back. <laughs> no surprises. No surprises. I felt like I'd wasted my money because <laughs> I knew that, right? Well, you know that Jessica, his brother did a DNA test and it was going to be a waste of money and uh, didn't end up being a waste of money. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> there are 23% surprises. English that we don't know where it comes from. Cool. Cool. <laughs> but yeah. Very cool. So, yeah, it's still worth doing, even yeah. if you even if you think you know. I, well, I didn't think it was a waste of money when I did it, but yeah, after but I got no. the results, I thought, <laughs> duh. Exactly. <laughs> so you grew up in New York. I did. And everyone asks probably, like, there are different types of Jews, just like there are different types of Christians. Right. So what type of Judaism did you practice? So my father was a cantor in a conservative synagogue. Okay. I went to an Orthodox yeshiva, which is a Jewish parochial school. So I was part of both groups. So there's 
Orthodox. There's a lot of different branches of each sect, mm-hmm. what I would call a sect. So there's Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Okay. And Orthodox is the original form of Judaism. And in the early 1800s, sometimes, German Jews came up with something called Reform Judaism. So the difference between the way I perceive it is not in what they believe in necessarily, but in how they perform the rituals or they follow certain rules. So the Reform Jews don't follow the rituals the way the Orthodox Jews do. Mm -hmm. And sometime around the late 1800s, early 1900s, a group of Jews in America decided that reform was too extreme for them. And they came up with conservative Judaism. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of between Orthodox and reform. Okay. Is that understandable? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so my father was a cantor in a conservative synagogue. So men and women sat together. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which in Orthodox, they don't. They don't. They separate. And in reform, they do sit together. They had a microphone, so they used electricity. They turned on and off electricity oh, on the, during on the services, Sabbath, which, is, yeah. which mm-hmm. the Orthodox don't do. Right. Mm-hmm. And but the service was all in Hebrew, primarily Orthodox service, mm-hmm. and the concepts were closer to Orthodox than to Reform. Okay. When my brother's daughter was bat mitzvah in a Reform synagogue, it was my first experience going to a Reform synagogue and I was surprised at certain things. The rabbi didn't wear a yarmulke. I'd never oh. been to a synagogue where mm-hmm. a rabbi didn't wear a, a yeah. skull cap mm-hmm. and other things that surprised me. <laughs> but we now, we have a Jewish congregation here mm-hmm. in Kenai and we are affiliated with Reform. And Judaism. you had a big part in starting that, didn't you? We did. <laughs> <laughs> so how'd you meet your husband when you moved to Alaska? How did that go? Like, that's a huge change from uh, New York to Alaska. What's a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn doing at a place like this? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I met my husband in upstate New York. We both worked at the same place. Isn't that funny? Both of my children met their spouses at work. Oh. We met at work. Uh, He is not Jewish. And we dated for a couple of months, nothing serious. And he took off to British Columbia to homestead and ended up not being able to homestead because he's not Canadian. And they had, <laughs> and they had stopped the homesteading program the year before, mm. which he didn't know. And he ended up in Alaska. He picked up a guy in a public bathroom in British Columbia who said, I'm going to Alaska, I'll split the gas with you. And he said, fine. <laughs> And that's how he ended up in Alaska, and he ended up in Fairbanks, and he worked, and he lived up in the Brooks Range for a year trapping. He started with a partner who left by Thanksgiving, so he spent a year in the Brooks Range trapping. And then he'd get his mail once a month, and his mother sent him letters every month saying, they're building a pipeline, go to work. (laughs) And uh, there was a trooper who owned a cabin near him, and he wrote a letter saying that Alan was a resident of Chandelar Lake, which was within 150 miles of a pipeline camp. And in those days, if you lived within 150 miles of a pipeline camp, you went to work before everybody else. And that was Mm. because they wanted the indigenous folks in the local villages to have the opportunity to go to work. Anyway, he was a really nice guy. He had a hunting cabin nearby, and he wrote the letter, and Alan walked out. 150 miles to the pipeline camp and they fed him and then he came back to Fairbanks and 
took this letter to all the unions. You had to be a member of a union. Mm -hmm. And each union said, well, come back Tuesday. You can go to work. Come back Wednesday. And the laborers said, you can go to work right away. And 25 years later, he retired from the laborers union. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that's his story. So he came back home. He had worked on the pipeline. It was nine weeks on and three weeks off. And his uncle died. And he came back to upstate New York. And I ran into him physically, just ran into him in front of a Sears store. And we started talking, and he asked me out to dinner. He told me about Alaska. He said, women are considered a minority, so they go to work before everybody else. And he'll make sure that I work in the same pipeline camp as him because not all women were safe on the Mm -hmm. pipeline. And I was going to school and working two jobs and banging my head against a wall, Mm. getting nowhere, and he made it sound like I could make a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) He went back, worked the pipeline, and came back and bought a van, and we drove up to Alaska. And I came up, and into Fairbanks, it was 60 below for three weeks when I got there in November of 1975. Yeah, they used to have those long stretches. Yeah, that was my introduction to Alaska. (laughs) And I signed up for the laborers' union, and after a month, they passed a local hire law that said you had to be a resident of the state for a year before you could go to work on the pipeline, which was found to be unconstitutional three years later. (laughs) But that didn't help me. (laughs) So first I went to work for McDonald's because it was within walking distance of our home, Mm -hmm. and we only had one vehicle, and he was working out of town. So I went to work for McDonald's, and I was vegetarian at the time. (laughs) So that was interesting. (laughs) And I took the post office test, and after three weeks of working... At McDonald's, I got notification that I passed the post office test, and so I gave my notice at McDonald's, <laughs> and they said, McDonald's said, I want to make you a manager, and we'll send you to McDonald University in, I don't know where it was, Indiana or someplace. <laughs> and I said, I've only been here three weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, they, and in those days, there was no computers, so they just took your cash draw and took it away, mm-hmm. and you never heard anything. Mm-hmm. And they said... You're the only one whose cash draw balances every time you use it. Hmm. And I said, well, the post office is offering me $9.75 an hour. If you can meet it or beat it, I'll consider it. And they said, oh, no, we can't pay you that. (laughs) But we'll give you a career. And I said, no, thank you. (laughs) And send you to McDonald's. I wonder if they do that still. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But in those days, you know, it was pipeline time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the people that were working were the ones who couldn't go to work. on. You know, they were young kids mostly. And I guess they didn't know their addition and subtraction. (laughs) Because they didn't tell you how much, you know, there was no computer. Yeah, you had to count the change You had to count change. You Mm -hmm. had to add things. That was my first job, too. Oh, there you go. I worked at a cannery. In Fairbanks? No, actually in Anilchik. Oh, yeah. I did. I worked at a cannery and I worked the retail section, so... People would come in and buy fish. You have to learn how to count how to change. Count change. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in Fairbanks. Yes, I did. So we lived in what looked like military apartments right behind the movie theater. Oh, okay. They've since redone those. They're really nice now. Oh, okay. Yeah. It wasn't so nice. No, <laughs> but it, it wasn't. Was... When I was a kid, we knew people who lived in there, and I remember it wasn't so nice. But it was... The... When we looked in the news, there were only one or two apartments available. Mm-hmm. And we went and talked to the manager. And the only reason she rented to us is because Alan had been in Alaska yeah. and had lived there. She wasn't renting to any new people coming to town. Yes, my parents all. came up to get jobs 
not with the pipeline, but because of the pipeline, because of the boom, my dad was an electrician and worked for the school district and my mother worked for the school district too. So they got jobs right away. Yeah. But living arrangements were really hard. My mom's aunt lived on Ileson and that's how they, they lived with her aunt for a while until they could find a trailer in Moose Creek. And then they lived out in Moose Creek for a while, but it was four adults and three kids in a trailer. Because then my grandparents came up because my grandparents also took advantage of the easy jobs. And yeah. We, uh, we lived like in that. the van. We drove up oh. in a van and slept uh-huh. in the van. And we lived in the van, I, I'd say, about three weeks. Whew. We had a little heater. It was oh. 60 below. Yeah. yeah. We had a little <laughs> heater, which really did not work very well. <laughs> but we imagine. were very young. Yes. <laughs> crazy. So how did your family feel about you marrying someone who was not? Of the same faith. So my dad was gone. He died in 1972. And my mom, she was just happy that I was getting married because I was 26 years old oh, and I was an old man. You were old man. You were, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> it's we're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. We decided to get married because we wanted to buy a house in North Pole and they wouldn't put my name on the paperwork if oh, we weren't okay. married. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's get married. We love each other. We're living together. We're mm-hmm. doing fine. And so I just wanted to, you know, go to the courthouse and mm-hmm. get married. And Alan wanted a party. He's real close to his family. Oh, okay. And he wanted a party. Mm-hmm. So he contacted his family and wanted to get married at the fire station in this little town. I mean, the town that he comes from has like 300 people. <laughs> they were probably all at the wedding. <laughs> well, we didn't end up getting married there. But oh. <laughs> there were more people in my graduating class in high school than in his hometown. That's the tr- you know, I grew yeah, yeah. up in Brooklyn. So there were like 700 people in my graduating class. So he said, no, I want to get married at the fire hall because his, his father was involved in all that. So I wrote my mother a letter, and I said, we're getting married, and we're going to get married at the fire hall in Woodburn, New York. And I get this Western Union telegram, because we had no phone. <laughs> Don't do anything. Call me immediately. So I go to a payphone, and I called her. And she said, you are my only daughter. You cannot take this away from me. I'm making you a wedding. And I have the place reserved. I have the rabbi, even though we were intermarriage, Mm -hmm. which is a whole nother story. And you have a choice between two dates in November and your cousin Susan is getting married on one of them. (laughs) (laughs) So you had first pick and Susan got what you didn't pick? No, Susan already picked. (laughs) So you had one pick. You had one. And I said, well, let me talk to Alan. And I said, Alan, I don't want a big wedding. I don't want this. Mm-hmm. And he said, what are you, crazy? Mm-hmm. Mom is, your mom is paying for it. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, we ended up paying for half of it. <laughs> but it was a big Jewish wedding. Oh, wow. A big Jewish wedding in a catering hall that my father used to perform weddings. Mm-hmm. In, which nice. was, so they all knew him yeah. there. So that was nice. That was nice, yeah. Yeah. So how did you make your way down to Nikiski? So we were living, we ended up not buying the house in North Pole for various reasons. And so we got married and then we came back to Fairbanks and Alan wanted to buy some wilderness property and he had a piece of property picked out. And so we started driving, we went to Anchorage and we stopped off at the BLM office and he showed the guy at the BLM office on the map where... He wanted to buy this property that was for sale. 
And we were hippies. <laughs> we were. Mm-hmm. And we were going to homestead. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted wilderness property. We were going to build our own house and do mm-hmm. all that. So the guy at BLM said, you really don't want to buy that property. They're turning it into a national park. And it ended up being Wrangell St. Elias National oh, Park. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right by McCarthy, yeah. where mm-hmm. a few years later, somebody shot a whole bunch of people and killed a whole bunch of people in McCarthy. It was just... And then the pilgrims... The pilgrims, yeah, were, were there. You know, it yeah. turns mm-hmm. out, I'm really glad we didn't buy property. Yeah. There, <laughs> lots of horrible things <laughs> happened in that area. But he says, no, you, you're going to be in-holding and you're going to have all kinds of restrictions on coming in and out and what you can do and can't do and cutting down wood. We wanted Mm. to build a a log house. So that was out the window. So we decided to come down to the peninsula because we'd never been and we called it the banana belt up in Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. So we came down and we looked in the newspaper for property and we found a piece of property listed in the newspaper and we couldn't find it anywhere. And we ended up all the way out in Nikiski at the fire station, still looking for this piece of property. Mm-hmm. And we stopped off at the fire station, and an, a man was there. His name is Dan. And we showed him the ad, and he called the borough for mm-hmm. us to find out where the property was. And he says to us, this is a pattern here, <laughs> you really don't want to buy that property <laughs> <laughs> because the tribe is taking it over. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. It was right mm-hmm. In front of where Wildwood Prison is now. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The tribe is taking over that, the adjacent property. Mm-hmm. This was property close to it, but he says, But I bought property down this road, and the guy is selling his property cheap, and you should go look and see. And he's out there on his bulldozer. Hmm. And so we drove down, and everywhere we looked, there were lakes, and yeah. it was gorgeous. It's mm-hmm. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And uh, we said, oh, I could live on this road. And and we stopped at the subdivision, and this guy's on a bulldozer, older guy, and his wife is in a pink Cadillac with lots of little foo-foo dogs, you know, (laughs) little poodles, (laughs) little miniature poodles. One of them, I think, was a champagne color or something, with bows, you know, and I was going, okay. But he was a homesteader, and he had bought this property from other homesteaders and he was putting in a subdivision and each lot was two and a half acres and so he showed us the map and he put whatever you want down and it's three thousand an acre wow so we bought all the way in the back because the back was bordered by what was then mental health land okay so there were 40 acres of mental health land behind us and it's now owned by one of the natives, Helen Madoff owns okay. it. But still, sh- it's nice to have property that's ordered by acres. that because you're yeah. probably yeah. not going to have anything ever built there. Hopefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we bought one lot and we headed out and we said we'd send him a down payment. And then we got all the way to Sterling and we were talking and, you know, we should buy the property next to us. Mm-hmm. So we went back to Nikiski <laughs> and we found him in a restaurant and, <laughs> and we stopped in and I said and we want to buy the property right next to us mm-hmm. so we got about five acres nice. nice and then we moved down and lived in a tent and built the basement and we rung the logs which means that you take about two feet and this was something my twin brother taught me because he built a log house in the Cascades in oh. Washington and he said he told us to do this. So you take about two feet of the bark off. 
Okay. You walk around and you check out which trees are the straightest, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you take about two feet of the bark off so that the the sap doesn't rise and oh. it and it dries while right. it's standing there. Yeah. So we built the basement. We put a roof on the basement, and the next year we cut down the logs and eventually put the logs up. And yeah. We're still living there. <laughs> we read a book and she talks about doing that mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In yeah, one of the books that we like to read, yeah. they mm. talk about doing that with trees with logs. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Book? Oh, the, the Outlander, Outlander series. Oh, the Outlander. <laughs> I have the first book in that series. I I need to start reading it. You recommended it to me years ago, and I never got oh, it. Oh, yeah. You either love it or hate it. Yeah. Yeah. So. One of the things we wanted to talk to you about was what are the basis for ethics in Judaism? Because we know what the basis of ethics in evangelicalism, we kind of talked about that in previous episodes. So we were wondering how it differs, how it's the same. So with evangelicals, um, oftentimes the, the basis is they have like a really huge emphasis on the Bible. So like that's often like what they focus on. They have a very big emphasis on evangelizing, but also like from our perspective where we got to is the idea of Jesus said to love God and love your neighbor. And that's the most important part. So like that's where our ethics come from. Basically, it's just like if it falls in line with loving God and loving your neighbor, everything else falls falls into that. So that's where we're from. So we were kind of looking at how, how does because we don't, I mean, we were raised in a very sheltered place, yeah. and so. <laughs> so, I have this written down, so I'm going to read it. In Judaism, God considers people's actions to be more important than their faith. So, mm. there's no set dogma, but there are definite rules on how to react in the world. Mm-hmm. And the rituals are all stuff that man created okay. primarily. So the Orthodox Jews believe that God wrote the Bible mm-hmm. and it comes from God. Mm-hmm. The Reformed Jews believe that the Bible comes from God, but that it was written down by man. Okay. I believe personally, and I was raised conservative, and but I went to an Orthodox yeshiva. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was taught that everything that I was studying in Hebrew and Aramaic was written by God, okay. came straight from God. As I grew up and changed, the, the world changed around me, I believe that God, I do believe in God, first of all, that God influenced the Torah, what we call the Torah, which mm-hmm. is the first five books of Moses, but that it was an oral history mm-hmm. that was handed down and eventually written down, yeah. primarily by men. Mm-hmm. So that's very similar to what we would believe as well. Yeah. And, and evangelical <laughs> Christians believe that? Or yeah. just you believe that? Because <laughs> the Orthodox don't believe right, that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I would say most evangelicals believe <sighs> that it was a divine inspiration of God. Basically, God, man wrote it down, but God had ultimate control over what that man was doing. Basically, the man who wrote it was the tool to write it. Right. God didn't physically write it himself. He used other people. The, the, he people. used the man to, to write, write it down. And yeah, then, and I would say that it was yeah. And I would inspired. say that it was probably divine inspired and oral history and you look Mm -hmm. at how history works Mm -hmm. oral history makes Mm -hmm. the most sense Mm -hmm. i mean obviously Mm -hmm. right genesis wasn't written at the time genesis happened Uh (laughs) right so to me to me the more i look at the bible and the more i look at like the stories of genesis and the changes that i go through as an adult 
is I think back to, you know, just oral history in general. Like mm-hmm. you look at the, how they told stories. And so it gives me so much more of a, I don't know, Almost a richer, lax, richer, but like, but also like, you don't look at it like a science. You look I don't at have like to look a at it story, like a science like a book. Richer. Yeah. I think about, mm-hmm. you know, people sitting around a fire telling these stories mm-hmm. and how symbolism is used and how, and why these like stories that. are important. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and every culture. And so, so I would say it's probably something like more I believe. I don't think evangelicals would would believe that. Come alongside me and say that's exactly what they believe. And I believe that different portions of the Bible or the Torah were written by different people. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be just one writer. Yeah, it would be you know yeah. a series mm-hmm. well, and over over many millennia. Even, yeah. And with us too, with the the New Testament being added on to the Christian books, most of the time they know the person who wrote them so they even have yeah you know this is who wrote this john wrote this Mm -hmm. you You have that you see we don't have (laughs) and so and so the that i think is an easy concept for for evangelicals to think oh well multiple people write the old testament too because obviously multiple people have written the new testament (laughs) right (laughs) Right. and so like you would think so it's common sense right (laughs) for yeah that but but yeah going back to where you said that what you do is more important than your faith that's an interesting perspective yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so halacha is the orthodox concept of the way to lead your life okay and it's very important to follow halacha, which means direction okay. in Hebrew. And so on the holiest day of the year, which is Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. when we fast, the week before Yom Kippur, Jews are supposed to apologize to people that they feel they have sinned mm-hmm. against. So it's all about your actions. Okay. Mm-hmm. And for the week before, you apologize and atone for your sins to humans. And then on the day of Yom Kippur, you fast and you pray and you atone for your sins against God. And it would mostly be because of your actions, Mm -hmm. at least the way I perceive it. So one of the things I read, and you can tell me if this is wrong, or is that (laughs) in Judaism, actions are more important, but thoughts, like your thoughts aren't necessarily as important. What you do is important. I'm not quite sure what the answer to that is, but I think in my heart, especially Orthodox Jews and possibly conservative Jews would feel that pure thoughts and good thoughts are important, but I don't think they would consider it a sin Mm -hmm. if you didn't uh, have that. It's more about how you treat other people. So there's a concept of derech eretz, which is the way you treat others. It's basically just manners. Mm, mm -hmm. That's what my concept of Derek Eretz, it's the way you treat others. And that is a point that is brought up many times with children, especially if you're fighting on the schoolyard or something. (laughs) Derek Eretz, you know. Remember your Derek Eretz, Mm. you know. (laughs) So it's not necessarily thoughts, but it's definitely a concept Mm, mm -hmm. and, and an attitude. Okay. Because, yeah, we were raised that, that your thoughts are... You, like, everything. everything. Like, everything that you think is important, especially with teenagers. Like, you have to have pure thoughts all the time and, like, can't think about sex at all. And, like, it was a big thing. So, like, then, you know, telling kids not to think of a pink elephant. You're going to think of a pink elephant. Telling kids not to think about sex is a and that huge issue. Are, that thoughts are, are just, just as, as bad exactly as, as Yeah, exactly as bad as an action. So if you think about 
throwing, like say you're a little kid on the playground mm-hmm. and there's a snowball and you put a rock in it and you hate that kid and you think about throwing that snowball and then decide not to, you still... Because you thought of it, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though you didn't throw it, because you thought of it, it's Mm -hmm. a sin. Yeah. Is it considered a sin? Yes. If it's a sinful thought, yes. Yes. Ah. Uh huh. And Mm -hmm. what happens if you commit a sin? Then you ask God for forgiveness. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then you're just basically consistently (laughs) asking God for forgiveness. (laughs) So you can think whatever you want as long as you ask God for. Forgiveness. No. <laughs> so there's the catch twenty two. That would be the logical. Um, I'm sorry. I'm very logical. <laughs> you know that would that would be the logical presumption, and that is the logical, conclusion. you know, conclusion mm-hmm. that everyone kind of comes to at one point or another. But then the church comes back and teaches you that that is not the way it works. Mm-hmm. You actually because cannot go into it thinking I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. Because faith without works is dead, is what they say. So if you have faith, but no works to go with it, so you need to continue to work on your, what you do and what you think and all that. So so I remember reading about the Middle Ages Catholicism and how, how the church would sell confessions oh yeah mm-hmm. so or indulgences or indulgences yeah. that's yeah. the yeah. word mm-hmm. that's the word yep and so if you committed something horrible mm-hmm. if you killed somebody mm-hmm. and you yes. went to confession and you confessed then god forgave you yep mm-hmm. and i remember reading a book about it and thinking well that's a get out of jail free <laughs> right well and evangelicals believe that you can do that you but you don't need the priest you can go straight to God. You can ask God for forgiveness. He will forgive you for murdering that person. But, but you still need to suffer the consequences for your actions. Ah, in so, the real world. Yeah. In the oh, real yeah, world. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, you but know, God there... forgives you. Yes. Yes. You feel forgiven. Yes. You should, yes. But, um, but then you go to jail. Go to jail. Yeah, <laughs> go to jail. Okay. And possibly go to jail for life. Yeah. And so... I know that there are Christians too, though, that, that don't necessarily believe in consequences for your actions. Mm-hmm. And it depends. It, it's yeah. a lot of stuff that we kind of gripe about in right. our own faith. Right. You know? And all faiths are like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> and so they'll look at it. Oh, this person is doing so good. They shouldn't go to jail. They're never going to abuse a child again. They've been forgiven. You know, most people with their head screwed on straight. straight say, I would just say Just because no, they're forgiven doesn't, doesn't mean, mean that, that there's no consequences. And that they might not do right, it again. Right. Yeah. Well, so, Jews are the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for instance, I grew up in an environment that was mostly Hasidic Jews. So mm. they're the ultra, ultra mm-hmm. Orthodox. Okay. And their children wouldn't play with us mm. because we were not Orthodox enough because mm. my brothers did not wear yarmulkes in the street. Mm. And my father was a cantor in a synagogue where men and women sat together and so Mm -hmm. we were not jewish enough Mm -hmm. for them and so they were lubavitch jews which is a sect of hasidim that came from a town in eastern europe and followed a certain rabbi and the town was lubavitch and so the name of the sect is lubavitch and there are different hasidic sects all with the names of their cities that they came from Uh in europe and they follow a certain rabbi so when Lubavitch Hasidim came to Anchorage, they're called Chabad, is the name of the organization that sends emissaries, Lubavitch sends emissaries all over the world mm-hmm. to bring Jews back to Judaism. So okay. Jews don't proselytize, right? Yes, but they do want Jews to come back to Judaism right. mm-hmm. because they believe that every mitzvah or every good deed 
in the eyes of God, there mm-hmm. are 618 mitzvahs, mm-hmm. I believe. And so every mitzvah that a Jew does brings it closer to the Messiah coming. Okay. So they will come to my house and ask me to light Friday night candles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I have a mezuzah on my door, which is an amulet that comes from, you should mark your doorposts. Oh, yes. right. Mm-hmm. Right. The, uh, so... Jewish people have mezuzahs, and so they'll check the mezuzah to make sure it's kosher. Yeah, okay. that has the right writing on it and everything. So that they these are all little mitzvahs that mm-hmm. they believe will bring the Messiah closer. Their goal is for the Messiah to come. Yeah. So I was talking to Rabbi Greenberg. His name is Yossi, and his wife is Esty, and they came from New York. He's originally from Israel by way of Russia, and she's originally from Michigan. But they are Lubavitch Hasidic Jews, Mm -hmm. and they are sent to a foreign place, which Alaska was considered. (laughs) They're all over the world, Uh everywhere. And they are sent to start a community of of Jews, and Uh they don't have to be Hasidic. And I said to him, I grew up in Crown Heights, Mm -hmm. which is the enclave of the Lubavitch rabbi who they revered. He's since passed away, but when I was living there, he was still alive. And it, and there's Lubavitch Hasidim all around me. And I told Yossi, they wouldn't play with me. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't play with us mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we weren't orthodox enough for mm-hmm. them. And here you are in Anchorage trying to reach me. And he said, it's very different out in the world. In Crown Heights, we're all very close and close-knit, and Mm -hmm. we don't want our children to hang out with people who are not part of our sect because we don't want them to go off and marry people outside of our sect. We Mm -hmm. want to keep, just like all groups, right? Yes, exactly. But but out in the real world, our role, according to the Rebbe, who was revered, Mm -hmm. out in the world, our goal is to bring Jews back to Judaism, not to convert Jews into Judaism, Mm -hmm. but to bring bring Jews back. back. Mm -hmm. So we will communicate with Jews who are intermarried, and we are all in our group intermarried, Mm -hmm. and which is why we affiliated with Reformed Judaism, Mm -hmm. because they accept any Jew, Mm -hmm. whether they are intermarried or not. And so the Orthodox Jews believe in matrilineal descent. So your mom has to be Jewish Mm -hmm. in order for the children to be Jewish. But Reformed Judaism believes in matrilineal and patrilineal. So if your father's Jewish, the children are considered Jewish Mm -hmm. in Reformed Judaism. So we are all intermarried. Some of us, the the men are Jewish, and some of us, the women are Jewish. So Reformed Judaism was the only way that we could affiliate, really, Mm -hmm. as a group. But It's interesting to just hear about how all the different places, because really that is the same with, I think it's just people. Every interpretation is different, and every group is different. You have the main groups, and then you have the offshoots. Mm -hmm. So, like, you have uh, Christianity, and then you have evangelical Christianity. Yeah. And you can choose a synagogue that... My son went synagogue shopping in Seattle mm-hmm. when he moved there to try and find a place that he felt comfortable. Right, yeah, which is very similar to, yeah. What and you do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And and he was searching for reform because that's what he's used to. Right. Mm-hmm. He's used to that kind of a service. Mm-hmm. But there were lots of different, some were old people, you know, mm-hmm. some were younger people, some were welcoming, some weren't welcoming. Mm-hmm. So it's all the same, you know. I think but you bring up a really good point, too. It's like with the children playing with you when you were little, Mm -hmm. that the different groups will judge, like, the ethics and 
and get down to judging the other groups around right. them as being because good of their or bad actions. Or, mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly because of their actions and mm-hmm. what they do, and Christians do it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's why Jessica and I just come down to the. <laughs> you know, love God and, and love your neighbor. You do right. both of those, you're accomplishing mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. pretty much everything. But everyone can get hung up on certain things. We were talking about that on the way home. We went to dinner. We were talking about on the way home how there are these people who might think I'm doing something really wrong by being with like a man in a room alone. Right. That might be very, very wrong to them. Right. And yet I can turn around and say something about them. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, oh, so or that other people, or that I've them. heard. No, I mean, or I've heard other people say something about them. So it's everyone's looking at everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was interesting. So like, yeah, there's a certain person who might think something I do is bad. And then someone else might come to me and say, oh, have you noticed they're doing such and such? <laughs> so everyone has their own views on ethics and what's mm-hmm. correct exactly. and mm-hmm. what's not, and even in religion. Yeah. yeah. Especially so, in religion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so join us next week when we finish our conversation with Paula. And this week's ethical product is Kester Black. What's Kester Black, Denise? It's a nail polish company. (laughs) It is. It's super fun. That has a really awesome Instagram and makes me feel all ASMR-ish, even (laughs) though I don't have an ASMR brain. And even though ASMR, real ASMR, makes you angry. Yeah, real Mm -hmm. ASMR makes me angry. But their Instagram makes me happy. Like, they do colors and textures, like textural pictures and color. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) But besides their amazing Instagram, they are a certified B corporation, Mm -hmm. which we've talked about before. And they're vegan and cruelty-free. And their manufacturing practices are sustainable. So they have a paperless office. Their labels and bottles are completely recyclable. Their... Packaging for shipping is recyclable and recycled, as well as they do fair labor practices, don't use child labor, make sure that they have time off for their employees, and they donate 2% to ASRC and Educate Girls. Yeah. They're out of Victoria, Australia. But they do ship to North America and the UK and the EU. So check them out online, on Instagram especially, because yeah, just it's just beautiful stuff. Um, and their their product is super good for your nails because it's breathable, except for the glitter nail polish. And so your nails will be stronger instead of uh, weaker like a lot of nail polishes make it because they still get oxygen, which your nails need. <laughs> like the rest of you. <laughs> oxygen is important. <laughs> So thank you for joining us here at Ethical Quandaries, a podcast where we have a lot of questions, but no answers, and, and we're, we're judging, judging you anyway. Technical support and photography by Tip King. Consultation by Mid Toker. Production music by EpidemicSound.com. Editing by me, Jessica Veldstrom. If you have an ethical quandary or a comment, you can email us at ethicalquandaries.outlook.com. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, if you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and support our work at patreon.com.